In every generation, a podcast is born. One pod in all the world, a chosen one. It is televisionary. And today, we're covering Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You just said fifth birthday party. If you were turning five and making your friends watch Buffy, that would be quite a different story. And for a show that has death in pretty much every single episode of some kind, to walk it back to a place of reality where it's real for the characters. The words you scream at a woman alone in a room speak louder than the words you write on the page. say this one uh, maybe we should just start like do our yeah. introduction we can say this on the episode well hello i am cody hoffman <laughs> and i'm elena hillard and if you're just joining us welcome to televisionary the podcast about the shows that shaped us if you need more of an introduction we are here basically to look at a different television series in each episode and just break it down for you in terms of the history of the show what inspired it you know some interesting factoids along the way maybe but more than that to look at the cultural impact that that show has had because television is a very powerful medium as we like to say and we like to look at those far-reaching aspects the implications of these very important tv shows especially ones that might not immediately come to people's minds because I just think it's cool to look at the different connections and the different influences that TV can have on our world. Yes. I just dig it, man. (laughs) Me too. So I was saying to you right before we started recording, I've never been so excited and nervous to talk about a TV series before on this podcast anyway than the one that we're talking about today, which is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And it's interesting because I don't want to spoil too much, but this is a show that a lot of people have spent a lot of time analyzing in a deep way. So that's kind of interesting. Art imitating art imitating life, in a sense, here. Yes, we are Maybe. like two, at least two layers deep of meta, yes. according to that explanation. <laughs> if I can just interject here, absolutely, I have to say... Okay, I feel like that's enough. I have to ask. Okay, so obviously we're doing Buffy the Vampire Slayer, if I didn't already say that. You did. Perfect. I thought I did, but then I thought maybe I didn't. I wanted to ask you, since you just did the theme song, what do you think about the theme song? <laughs> um, the, I think it's a great theme song, honestly. <laughs> it, like, it's memorable. Like, it's catchy. You instantly recognize it. Mm-hmm. I, like, I knew that that was the theme song of the show before I watched any of the show. Like, I just had heard it other places, I guess. But, like, watching it on the show, like, sometimes it, you know, felt like maybe a little jarring or out of place coming from, like, the opening, the cold open of the show or whatever, um, and then bursting into that Nerf Herder song. But I I think it's a, a great theme. I love it, too, and it feels very, like, of the time in which the show came about. Yes. But it is, it is certainly a lot. It's, it is it's jarring mood. at times. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I was just curious what you thought about it. I am extremely excited about this episode because Buffy the Vampire Slayer is, I used to say, my all-time favorite TV show. I would say it is tied as my favorite TV show. Can I ask tied with what? Tied with Mad Men. Okay. Yeah. Two, two very similar shows. <laughs> 
But anyway, yeah, those those are my two all time favorites. But Buffy, I love. I had grown up and seen just a few episodes. I think a lot of people in my life think that I had like watched it all as a child, like growing up. But I don't think I was quite the right age to be watching it on TV as it was airing. I mean, I was and I wasn't like I I just I was a little too young to be keyed into like watching any TV show every single week at that point when Buffy was airing. But I did see it in syndication a few episodes here or there. And I have like a very memorable experience of in fifth grade, I had like a little sleepover. I had some people over and I made them watch Buffy with me for my birthday. It was Gabby, maybe Catherine, and then Michelle Toto. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, that... I I love that so Uh much. I don't think I ever heard that story. Yes. About Michelle coming over. Yeah. I, my, well, we don't have to get into it, but yes, it was kind Uh of a, an odd mix of friends from my fifth birthday party. But yes, I made them watch Buffy. Fifth grade birthday party. Fifth grade birthday party. Because if if you were, you just said fifth birthday party. Oh, If you were turning five and making your friends watch Buffy, (laughs) that would be quite a different story. (laughs) Um, anyway, I never watched the entire series till I was in college. And I, one more quick trip down memory lane. I think it was season four or five of the show the first time I was watching it all the way through. I woke up at like 8 a.m. and I watched all like 22 episodes in one day. Like I just woke up super early and stayed up till super late. So yeah, I love Buffy. I've seen it a million times and... It's always going to be one of my favorites, but you didn't like it as much as me, which I kind of expected, but I gave you a list of like 26 or 27 episodes or something to watch. Yeah, I had never seen any of it before, but had listened to Elena talking about it for years, and it was just never something that I thought totally appealed to me. Like, it just didn't seem like exactly my kind of show, the kind of thing I typically go for. I didn't think it would be bad, and for the record, still do not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, but I I would not say that after watching the selected group of episodes that Elena prepared for me, I <laughs> can't say I loved it, but I definitely have an appreciation for it. I understand why people do enjoy it so much. Mm-hmm. I'm just, you know, maybe not the exact target audience for it, which... It's okay, because not everyone loves the shows that I am the target audience for, so I can't (laughs) hold it against anyone if they don't also love 30 Rock, because that's my all-time favorite show. Yeah. I won't hold it against anyone who loves Buffy. Well, let's not waste any more time rambling about how much we like the show, and let's actually just explain to people what the show is about, in case they have no idea. Well, okay then. So something that I kind of knew, but like was tucked back in the back of my brain that was refreshed whenever I, you know, started looking up some things about Buffy was that Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the series, is loosely based on a 1992 film called, get ready, (laughs) Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Joss Whedon wrote that script for the original film, and they created the movie. It was not exactly the vision that he had for that story when it was all said and done, so he was kind of disappointed with it. But several years later, he was offered the opportunity to turn Buffy into a television series. So he had a lot more creative freedom, you know, was promised, you know, executive producer credit and all of that to actually create the show that he wanted to create for that story. And 
Obviously, the series became a lot more successful than that movie. The movie in its own right is, you know, kind of a cult hit, I guess you would say, but to the average person, if you say Buffy the Vampire Slayer, they are definitely going to know about the series and may not even know that the movie exists or may have <laughs> forgotten about it. So I think the series kind of took a, I would describe it as being a supernatural dramedy. And it's set in this world. There's vampires, demons, there's other dimensions, there's gods. It's just this whole supernatural take on Earth, essentially. And Buffy herself is the current slayer. This is one girl in a long line of slayers of yesteryear who is gifted supernatural abilities that allow her to fight some of these evils, specifically vampires, but she also fights demons and all of the other sort of big bads that exist in this world. She is kicked out of her high school for burning the gym down at her old school. It was infested with vampires. You don't need to know that, but that's fine. And mm -hmm. then she and her mom relocate to Sunnydale, which happens to sit on top of a hellmouth, which is sort of a hotspot for all sorts of supernatural activity. And the specific Hellmouth in Sunnydale sits directly underneath the high school's library. Buffy is played by Sarah Michelle Gellar, and she reluctantly accepts her duty as Slayer when she moves to Sunnydale and is guided by Giles, who is played by Anthony Stewart Head. He is her watcher, basically the person who trains her in how to be the best slayer that she can be. As time progresses, she makes two really good friends who are often referred to as the Scooby Gang. Those two friends are Willow. She is a really academic type who eventually becomes a witch. And then there is Xander, who is sort of the heart of the group and has no real magical abilities. Other recurring characters are her two love interests, Angel, who is a vampire with a soul, and Spike, who is a vampire whose obsession with Buffy eventually turns to love. And one thing that's kind of clear if you're following what I'm saying, you know, the Hellmouth is literally underneath the school library. That is the first in many parts of the show, which it shows a lot of metaphor. So the fantasy elements of the show stand in as a metaphor for the trials and tribulations of growing up and later on navigating adult life. So the school is sort of the initial place for all of the evil that's happening. But as the characters age and they go to college and work jobs, the evil sort of gets bigger and expands to reflect the larger problems that people face as they enter the real world. Wow. Does that make sense? <laughs> it sure does. And that is some um, psychological depth <laughs> to this series that people probably do not attribute to it. So as I said before, the show is loosely based on a 1992 film. Just wanted to throw in here that that film was produced by a production company called Sand Dollar Productions, which was owned and co-founded by... Get ready for this. Dolly Parton. <laughs> yeah. Like, Dolly Parton is responsible for, partly at least, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Like, Isn't that incredible? I just love that so much. And, you know, when I think about it, it kind of makes sense because... Dolly is such a strong, powerful woman who has always lifted up other women and uh, has never been afraid to turn down a good idea. <laughs> and she saw a script, or uh, I guess it was her partner in the production company brought the script to her and, you know, they decided to pursue it. But they saw an opportunity to make a kind of film about a kind of hero that has not been really portrayed before. Teenage girl who 
fights vampires and destroys the world was a pretty <laughs> novel concept in 1992. And even though the film did not end up being super successful, they still saw the potential in that story. And Sand Dollar Productions was still behind the series later mm-hmm. on. So pretty cool stuff. I know. I love that. And I think you're definitely on to something by saying that like it in a weird way just fits with Dolly Parton. <laughs> I don't know. It just makes sense. Like she's this big blonde haired like lady <laughs> who is sort of like feminist in her own way, I would say. And not to segue too far from that onto our next point, but I know that Whedon's intention from the get-go with this story of Buffy was to take that Hollywood stereotype of the woman who is always killed in a horror movie and subvert that and make her the hero. And so I have a quote that I wanted to read, which is from Joss Whedon. And he said, quote, the little blonde girl who goes into a dark alley and gets killed in every horror movie to subvert that idea and create someone who was a hero. The very first mission statement of the show was the joy of female power, having it, using it, sharing it. And I love that. And I think that they absolutely followed through on that. And I'm glad that people saw the potential in telling a story like that. Yeah, I just need to remark here, though, about the irony of Joss Whedon celebrating the joy of female (laughs) power, having it, using it, and sharing it. For reasons that we will touch on later in this episode, but a little foreshadowing here (laughs) that that is an ironic statement coming from him. (laughs) Absolutely. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the series, premiered on March 10th, 1997, on the WB, which used to be a network (laughs) For those of you who don't know what the WB is, it was a very new network at the time. So it was not really in a position to compete in any way with the big four, CBS, NBC, ABC, and Fox. But it it did average about four to six million viewers per episode, which was a huge success for WB at the time. And then after airing for five seasons on the WB, the show moved to UPN. Which used to be a network. (laughs) (laughs) Incidentally, the UPN and the WB kind of joined forces several years after Buffy went off the air and formed the CW. But anyway, Buffy aired on UPN for his final two seasons. It also entered into syndication in 2001 after the fifth season and has bounced around airing on cable networks since then. So during its time on the air, Buffy launched one spinoff, which is called Angel, which follows her love interest, Angel. And that series, I did not realize, actually aired for five seasons. And that was also on the WB from October 1999 to May 2004, and it has a bunch of the same characters from Buffy, plus some new additions to the world. So was Angel still airing on WB after Buffy had moved to UPN? Because if Angel started in, what, the third or fourth season of Buffy Mm -hmm. and ran for five seasons, then it would have been on a different network than its parent show, which seems unique. I am double-checking. Yes, it was on the WB for all five seasons. Huh, interesting. Isn't that weird? And I actually, I know a lot of people who either only watched Angel or prefer Angel to Buffy as their favorite out of the two. Wow. Which I have never seen a single episode of Angel. I've kind of been saving it, like, (laughs) I don't know, for like someday when I don't want to watch Buffy again, but I want to be in that world. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting, though. I didn't 
that didn't flag in my mind when I was making my notes, but that's mm-hmm. a good point to make. Do you know if Sarah Michelle Gellar crossed over to this, this series Angel at all? Because I know that Angel came back onto Buffy for subsequent right. episodes. I think that she's in a few episodes. I will look that up as well because I don't want to say the wrong thing. It would just be especially interesting to me if they were both crossing over to each other's shows on different networks <laughs> that whole time. Yeah, she she was in five episodes of Angel. Huh. I don't know what season, so maybe they were only when she was when, still... Yeah, yeah. On the WB. Huh. WB. Yeah. Yeah. Well, another spin-off of sorts followed the conclusion of the series, and this is a comic book continuation of Buffy. And I've read some of it. So this comic book series was produced by Dark Horse Comics. They're a pretty big producer of comic books from what I understand. And the first of these continuations launched in 2007. It's called Buffy Season 8. And it was fairly successful. I know it was originally supposed to only be a 25 issue run, but it was expanded to 40 issues for that season eight and then has had two subsequent comic book seasons since then. So season nine, which launched in 2011 and season 10, which launched in 2014. And this is technically just a continuation. It's canon, as people say, but I will say from what I read, it's definitely a little more out there than the series. Obviously, you can do more with comics than you can with like a TV show because you can draw whatever you want. So mm-hmm. like, for example, Dawn is like a giant in it oh. and like some other <laughs> weird stuff happens. Did I read somewhere online that there is like a Buffy reboot happening? Are you aware of this? Yes. So I think that there is, it's still in development, but there is allegedly going to be a Buffy reboot happening. It's not being led by Joss Whedon. There is a female showrunner in place, and I just haven't heard anything about it in a really long time. Like, I originally heard about it years ago and then don't really know what's going on with it at this point. Did you see Hmm. anything while you were looking? I didn't. Well, I think I just saw on Wikipedia that, like, there was like a reboot listed as like a spin-off or you know something but I couldn't really find any details about it anywhere online I didn't look too hard but I just wondered if you as a super fan had any insider knowledge that you could share but <laughs> no I don't have any insider knowledge and I feel conflicted about a reboot because I don't know just the way that the show ended it feels mm. like you could easily do kind of a spin-off but like to follow the actual plot of the original series would be kind of strange. So I'm, I don't know, I'm not opposed to the idea, but it does seem kind of weird. And it's such a beloved, like, cult show mm-hmm. that to reboot it is kind of dangerous, I think. Like, it, it could either be really well received or absolutely hated by the fan base. Yeah, it's, I think it's um, hitting that same spot as Sex in the City with And Just Like That, where <laughs> you're going to garner the interest of the original fan base with a reboot of any kind, but I feel like you have to really just hit it. You have to nail it or people are just going to tear it apart because they don't like their shows being tampered with. Yes, I completely agree. That's a really good comparison to make. 
as of the recording of this episode, we have not seen anything of And Just Like That, so we don't know if it's any good or not. I'm not sure when it's actually coming out, if it will be before this episode is released or not. So Buffy was largely a critical success when it was on the air. Critics kind of loved this show, but despite all of that, it was pretty much ignored by all of the major awards shows during its run. I will say Sarah Michelle Gellar received one Golden Globe nomination in 2001, and also the episode Hush received an Emmy Award nomination, not a win, for (laughs) Outstanding Writing in a Drama Series. I actually feel like we have a perfect segue into our next portion of the episode. We are going to talk about three episodes of the series that I think and I think most people agree were very important and had some resonance beyond the show. And the first of those episodes that we want to talk about is the episode that received the nomination for Outstanding Writing, which is Hush. And that aired in season four, episode 10. And this was your favorite episode of the ones that we watched, right? It was, yes. I just thought, like, if every episode of the series was like Hush, I think I would love the series. But (laughs) it stands out as the best of the series for most people for a reason, I think. So tell us a little bit what it's about, because I'm sure you've watched it a million (laughs) times and can do a better job explaining it than I could. Okay, so I actually rewatched it just the other day because I was, like, thinking about it (laughs) and wanted to see it. So in this episode, these evil beings called the gentlemen come to town and they steal everyone's voices. And so because of that, there is very little dialogue. I would say about 13 minutes into the episode, the dialogue pretty much disappears till the last scene of the series, of of the episode. Of the series. Of the series. Silent series from then on. (laughs) So because of that, the show had to tell this story in kind of a really different way. They write on dry erase boards, they mime stuff out, like they just do a really good job of communicating and having dialogue without dialogue, I guess would be the best way to put it. Like moving the story along with no talking, just action. And despite that, I think it still stays in line with the humor of the show. I think it's still very captivating and funny to watch. There are some moments in this episode that never fail to make me laugh out loud, like Buffy miming, staking something and it looking like an inappropriate (laughs) hand gesture. And everything with Xander in this episode. He's just such a brilliant physical comedian in my mind. And I think that this episode gives him like a lot of opportunities to show that off. So I would also say that this episode is one of the scariest episodes of Buffy. The gentlemen themselves are actually very creepy and they have these like (laughs) little henchmen that look like maybe psychiatric ward patients. They're in like kind of straight jackets and their arms are like flailing. And <laughs> it's just genuinely creepy. And it has that tie in to kind of, it feels like a fairy tale. And that's kind of how it's explained within this episode that this is like a fairy tale kind of villain come to town to steal these voices. I just have to say too, like some of the gentlemen, I think there were like two of the gentlemen whose like mouths actually moved. And then there were two that, had bigger smiles that like clearly were not capable of moving that were prosthetic makeups and there's just something so jarring about seeing this gigantic mouth on those two other ones that for me was like I don't know why that image stuck with me so much of all of the prosthetic makeup jobs that they did on the show you know on the episodes that I watched that were really good and like really 
you know, some of them off-putting and disturbing and all of that, <laughs> but, like, something about the look of those characters was just so... I, it stuck with me. It, for some reason, yeah. imprinted on my brain <laughs> and really did strike just the perfect amount of fear, but also, like, they're smiling, so you almost, like, don't want to view them as, like, horrible <laughs> beings, whatever they are. You sort of want to accept what they are doing to you, maybe? Stealing your voice? But they are clearly nefarious, and, you know, just floating around town and stealing voices. <laughs> yeah, I always, when I see them, think of the movie Hellraiser. Like, there's mm. almost, like, a pinhead kind of I think that's okay. what the Hellraiser person is called, but it almost that kind of quality to them. But they are also just like weirdly polite. I don't know if you noticed that, but they like <laughs> uh -huh. clap for each other right. and are like, oh, after you, no, after you. It's like this very weird thing. Mm -hmm. And also, I will say this episode introduces, so up until this point of the series, Willow's character is perceived to be straight, with maybe a few references thrown into the fact that she is actually a lesbian. And in this episode, she meets her first girlfriend, Tara. And I think that the scenes with the two of them together, they don't kiss, they don't like talk, but just they, they hold hands at one point to do magic together and it is just like you know immediately without having to be told that there is something more going on there beyond mm -hmm. like friendship and I think that that it happens in this episode is so telling and brilliant and like such a great decision yeah I've just been watching the show only murders in the building oh yeah on Hulu I don't know if people are familiar with that but one of the episodes of that focuses mostly from the perspective of a deaf character and the Ooh. entire episode with no real warning because like the deaf character is a very minor character at first but ends up becoming more involved later on so like you don't realize it at the time but you kind of notice at first that you're not really hearing things and then you realize oh it's from his perspective and the entire episode has no spoken dialogue and oh, that's like so cool. only vibration kind of sounds to like mimic what a deaf person might actually hear and and, you know, some music and select sounds throughout the episode, but no spoken dialogue. And it reminded me of Hush. And I, you know, just thought, I wonder if an episode like this would have been produced if Hush hadn't done that first, kind of, you know? Yeah. Because I, I think that that's such a bold choice and something that no other shows at the time were really willing to do. And probably couldn't have pulled off because it's just something so out there and different and that's the kind of thing that Buffy did so well. Absolutely. Another episode that is often mentioned as one of the best of the series and has sort of a similar thing not maybe not a similar thing but also does something interesting with sound is the body which is in season five it's episode 16 and this is the episode where Buffy's mom dies of natural causes. And what always has stood out to me with this episode is that they only use diegetic sound. So the only sound present is the sound of what's actually happening within the action. There's no score. There's no jump scare sounds. Like it is just the sounds of like everything going on. What did you think of this episode? This was another of my favorite episodes of the ones you made me watch because it, I, I wasn't expecting it to, you know, kind of go to the place that 
it did in dealing with a, an unexpected death like that. Um, I don't know. It's just, I, I think the absence of the score and everything makes it feel sort of sparse in a way that is sort of true to grief. Like, I feel like when you have an unexpected loss like that, you start to perceive the world in a different way in that moment. Like, things just feel different. They feel empty, maybe, for lack of a better word. And not having that score that you're so used to having on a television series there to fill that space, I think, is representative of that person being gone, which I think is a, such a brilliant choice. And it it struck kind of close to home for me, if I'm going to be honest, because I my mom died several years ago pretty quickly. You know, things she had stomach cancer that accelerated quickly. So like just on a personal level, I was I definitely appreciated what it did. And I felt like it got things pretty right about mm -hmm. the way that it feels to lose someone so important to you so quickly. I think it's one of the better depictions of death and the immediate grief that follows that I've that I can remember seeing on TV. Yeah, you saying everything you just said reminded me of I think my favorite moment in the episode. Tara says something. I think Tara shares that her mom had also died and Buffy said, "Was it sudden?" And Tara's like, "It's always sudden." Mm -hmm. Like even in the series, like they knew that Joyce was not well, but thought she might be getting better. And then, you know, it's obviously, even if you think it might happen, you never see it coming kind of a thing. And I don't know, I really appreciated that. And I think that they did a good job in just focusing on like the little moments, you know, not trying to go too big with anything. And for a show that has death in pretty much every single episode of some kind, to walk it back to a place of reality where mm -hmm. it's real for the characters is, yeah. is what makes it so special. Yeah, totally agree. We have one final episode to talk about, which is a little bit lighter, thankfully, and that is the episode, one, well, kind of lighter, which is <laughs> Once More with Feeling, which is season six, episode seven. This is the musical episode of Buffy and a personal favorite of mine. And ultimately, maybe I think the most impactful episode of the series, because while there had been other musical episodes of TV before this episode, specifically thinking of Xena Warrior Princess does an episode that is a musical episode, this is kind of the musical episode. If you look up a list of the best musical episodes, this is always near the top. And after this episode, I feel like if any show is on the air longer than five seasons, they're gonna do a musical episode. I mean, <laughs> Grey's Anatomy, Scrubs, The Magicians, The Flash, Community. Lucifer, Futurama, Fringe, those are just some of the shows that followed this show that did musical episodes. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that it was hugely impactful in making shows realize that musical episodes are a real possibility to to produce and to be good and to be well received by fans. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I think one of the things that I think is so cool about Buffy is that it could take leaps like this like could say we're doing a musical episode and it makes sense within the context of the series because yes why can't we have you know a like 
demons, or I don't remember the exact plot of the episode, but <laughs> there can be supernatural forces that are causing people to express themselves through song. You know, like we can right. be following the characters' actions through the songs that they are singing and they don't know why they are singing. And it's cool that it all makes sense and it's not just a hokey, we're doing a musical today <laughs> kind of thing that I feel like a lot of the shows that have followed suit in trying uh-huh. to pass it off uh, have done. The fact that there just sort of are no boundaries with Buffy. Mm-hmm. You know, there are the subscribed set of rules that they have established for themselves within the universe of the show. But anything within that, which is a pretty broad set of rules, if we're going to be honest, but <laughs> like they can just decide to do a musical episode like that. They can do an episode that ends up being mostly silent on the opposite end of the spectrum. Yep. So it's just so cool, I think, that a show can do that. And there aren't a whole lot of other shows I can think of that are capable of pulling off so many different things like that. Definitely. So we are going to get into a little bit of the broader impact of the show here. So the first thing that kind of sprang to mind for me when I was thinking about the show is just the impact that it had in several different ways on the TV industry. And after I looked into it a little bit deeper than what I already knew, I saw a lot of people saying that Buffy really pushed the boundaries of what was happening on TV at that time in terms of story structure. So a lot of people put this kind of on the same level as even a show like The Sopranos for kind of ushering in this new era of TV, this golden age of television that we are currently living in. And one of the ways that Buffy did this is by popularizing the season-long story arc. I don't know that I really can say that it is totally responsible for this, but I think compared to other shows at the time, even like a show like The X-Files, which I think had quote-unquote Monster of the Week episodes, but also had a little bit of a season-long arc, Buffy did that to a much higher degree, to a much more effective degree. I think that with Buffy, you had your Monster of the Week episodes, but you always had a season-long villain. And you would check in with this villain in every episode. You would meet up with him a few times throughout the season. And after Buffy, I don't think as many shows were made that were just Monster of the Week. I think after Buffy everything kind of had this season-long arc, this serialization. And I don't know, what I, I'm curious to hear your take on this, because to me, it seems strange to credit Buffy with this sort of phenomenon. But I did come across so many people saying that it is the show that really popularized this kind of formatting for TV. So I don't know if you found any research that I didn't there, or if you're maybe more familiar with contemporary shows of the time than I am. But I don't know, what do you think? So I will say that I don't know like a lot of like other drama shows specifically that are probably more likely to have uh, the season long arcs than sitcoms. But of the time, I'm not like super well versed in like that late 90s, early 2000s kind of programming. But it does stand to reason to me that Buffy would have been one of the first to kind of do that intentionally. You know, it, there might have been other shows that had to sort of grow their characters in order to tell their stories better, but they still so largely stuck to that procedural style. And I think that that was probably because 
because until the 90s or so, you had an audience that wasn't always going to be the same week after week. You didn't always have people that were going to be tuning in specifically for that show. It was more like, I'm going to watch whatever is on tonight. And oh, look, it's Law and Order. So that is the thing that I am going to watch because that is on right now and it's nine o'clock. Going into the 90s, that's when you had this proliferation of so many more cable networks that were expanding syndication opportunities for shows. So you didn't just have to rely on the broadcast networks airing the new episodes and then maybe a rerun or two of each episode over the course Mm -hmm. of the year and then you would never see it again. You would be able to watch past seasons all the time if it was on a syndication. So I think that expansion of the TV landscape allowed shows, shows like Buffy, that have a pretty specific following to allow viewers the opportunity to keep seeing more and more of those episodes and to watch them, you know, all the time. And by doing that, they can tell stories that are expansive, you know, more expansive in themselves. So you don't have to restrict yourself to only telling stories that make sense within each episode for fear of alienating people who haven't seen them before, because you can kind of bank on the fact that your loyal diehard fans are going to seek out your show in syndication and be able to you know, catch up if they have missed anything as it's airing live week to week. The same kind of goes for HBO with Sopranos because they could air whatever they wanted whenever they wanted. So it makes more sense for them too to be able to have these longer stretched out stories going on. But I think Buffy was kind of the perfect show to pilot that because they knew they were going to have that built-in audience with that. Right quote-unquote cult following, they were going to be able to tell stories that people were going to seek out regardless. Yeah, I read this great article, a Vox article, that initially, like, the article starts with the author talking about how she always watched Buffy and The Sopranos. Like, those were the shows she watched week to week, and she really credits them both with ushering in this kind of new age of TV. And at first I was like, this is such a strange comparison to make. Like, The (laughs) Sopranos and Buffy are so different. But then I just started thinking about it and it actually makes perfect sense to me. Like, I think both of them did do kind of the same thing in just a very different way. And Mm -hmm. I see them both as sitting almost perfectly as like bridge TV shows is like what I kept calling them in my mind as the bridge between old TV and new TV or old TV and like golden age of TV where their writing is amazing and they do have these season long arcs, but there are just moments where they do feel limited by the time in which that they were on the air. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, just the more I thought about it, the more that comparison held true in my mind. And I haven't seen all the Sopranos. I think I've seen like two and a half seasons of it or whatever, but I think I've seen enough to say that confidently. Mm -hmm. I would say more tangibly than even the, the season long arc structure that Buffy sort of may or may not have totally pioneered. It did lead to this whole era of female-led dramas, and a lot of these being supernatural dramas, but just a few shows that kind of followed in this, like, female lead character path, I guess, Mm -hmm. would be (laughs) Dead Like Me, Veronica Mars, Joan of Arcadia, Teen Wolf, which... I thought was about a bunch of dudes, but apparently has a an, a lady character as well. Oh. Gilmore Girls. And those are just a few shows. And I think the other side of that is that before Buffy, I think a lot of shows that were about teenagers were maybe 
not always necessarily geared specifically toward teenagers. Like they were kind of banking on parents watching the shows as well as teenagers. And with Buffy, I think the show was about teenagers and for young people. Like sure, Mm -hmm. older people watched it, but it was marketed specifically toward teenagers. And I think changed the way in which TV shows were created and greenlit. And I just think it sort of launched this whole trend that still exists today of like actually making shows for that demographic, for that teen demographic. Yeah, I don't know. I think that that is directly because of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I would agree with that because before this, broadcast television was trying to be everything to everyone. And then you had some children's programming, cartoons and stuff (laughs) that were aimed directly to children and no one else. But you were missing that in-between space. And clearly there was a market for it because you had movies that were definitely targeted more toward teenagers before that. Why couldn't you have television too? But I feel like the broadcast networks were so hung up on this idea of trying to be everything to everyone and trying to capture the absolute widest possible spectrum of viewers. And that started to change a little bit more, I think, again, because of cable, because you had networks that could spring up and become MTV, where it is really just targeted at the youth. And it doesn't matter if anyone else is watching it because it's locked into their bill and it's, you know, it's there if they want to watch it. (laughs) And it doesn't matter if they don't because they're getting paid anyway. So is Buffy entirely responsible for that? Maybe not, but it's definitely one of the shows that capitalized on that shift from the broadcast side of things. You know, like it's clear that network execs were thinking more about targeting certain demographics with shows around this time. And Buffy was one of the first shows that it seems was able to do that effectively. Do you feel like the CW still kind of follows that same pattern? Oh, totally. Yeah. 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 I do too. I don't see anything on the CW other than maybe like, whose line is it anyway? (laughs) That (laughs) really is meant to be for an older audience. You know, it just... The shows that I have watched on the CW are Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and, well, America's Next Top Model when that was on the CW (laughs) back in the day. I think that's all that I ever watched on the CW. And uh, those, I think, are pretty clearly geared toward younger audiences, can be appreciated by older ones. But I feel like that's been the CW's whole thing all along, which Mm -hmm. makes sense. I, I don't know exactly what the WB's origins were as far as, like, if they were trying to establish themselves as the quote unquote young people's broadcast <laughs> network, like the broadcast equivalent to MTV or something. But I feel like greenlighting a show like Buffy certainly indicates that they were willing to take chances that other networks were not as far as trying to engage youth and maybe only youth with their shows. (laughs) So I think it was smart of them to try to compete with cable in that way. And we definitely see so much more of that willingness to take chances today on broadcast. But for the time, I definitely applaud the WB for being willing to take a chance on a show like Buffy. And obviously it paid off for them, at least for a while, until they shipped it off to UPN. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. It didn't just pay off for the WB. It also paid off for a lot of the people that worked on the show. Nice segue. So behind the scenes, the alumni of the show have gone on to have pretty impressive careers. Well, until 
they didn't anymore in terms of <laughs> Joss Whedon. But Joss Whedon went on to work on some Marvel movies. I think he worked on the Avengers and then he more recently worked on the DC movie, The Justice League, which is part of his whole controversy that we will eventually talk about. But beyond him, there have been a lot of people on the show that went on to do big things. So Jane Spenson, she was a writer, producer on the show, went on to work on The O.C., Gilmore Girls, Battlestar Galactica, and Game of Thrones, which, correction here, in one of our minisodes, I talk about Unreal, and I say that Marty Noxon worked on Game of Thrones. It was Jane Spenson, not Marty uh, Noxon. But if anyone was correction. wondering. Uh-huh. Another pair of writers for the show, David Fury and Drew Goddard, worked on Lost, and then Marty Noxon went on to work on Sharp Objects and Unreal, which I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I was very surprised to find out about Buffy is that in a 2012 study that was conducted by Slate, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer was named as the most studied pop culture work by academics, with more than 200 papers, books, essays, etc. devoted to an academic study of the series. That is... (laughs) <laughs> it's it seemed so crazy to me at first that there would be such a uh, such an obsession within the academic world about this show but upon thinking about it more it does make sense to me because i think it checks so many of the right boxes for things mm-hmm. that researchers would want to study and it, it just is a fascinating case study in so many ways for the impact that it the TV show can have on pop culture and uh, for the way that it's presenting its characters in a different way and, you know, interpretations of media. It's just a a fascinating phenomenon. Don't they just call it, like, Buffy studies? Like, isn't that (laughs) the uh, collective term for this research? Yeah, and so... Like, I think it makes a lot of sense when you look at the way that they wrote the show. They would almost always go into writing these episodes by thinking first of sort of the internal struggle of the characters. Like, Xander doesn't feel a part of the group because he's non-magical. So it's like, they take that and then they think of a way to represent that using like the magical elements of the show or the setting of the show and so like as it's written it already has this level of like metaphor to it that not every tv show has because it maybe in an on the nose way is taking the internal and making it external and like doing that in a really cool way so i can see how on like such a nerd level that is going to appeal to people because you can read it just like you could read with a capital R a literary text but the show has been studied on so many more levels than just sort of like a literary way and I hate to just keep reading quotes I guess I only did it once already but I really (laughs) wanted to read this quote about some of the ways in which the show has been studied so quote Buffy scholars have taken dozens of different approaches to understanding the television show or using it to further work in other disciplines. In the decades since it went off the air, a Stanford University population ecologist used mathematical formulas to determine potential vampire demographics in Sunnydale, (laughs) a strategist at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the prominent Washington, D.C. think tank, compared Buffy's war against the forces of evil to the U.S. war on terror and named 
a new paradigm in biological warfare after the fictional vampire slayer. An English language historian and linguist published a lexicon of Buffy speak, the insider name for the particular slang and expressions used in the show. So (laughs) it's like not just literature. It's so much more than that. And I wanted to ask you, why do you think this show and like not another show? And for me, I guess what I'm trying, maybe more specifically trying to get at is I feel like supernatural and like sci-fi shows like are often looked down upon mm-hmm. by people. And so it's interesting to me that this is sort of the show that maybe led the way to more critical viewpoints on tv and i think since then there have been more shows that have been studied but i don't know like why why buffy why not the sopranos or why Mm -hmm. not the wire i don't know do you have any more you'd like to say about that yeah i mean i think it's kind of a short answer to the question is because of all of the things that we have already mentioned about the show like (laughs) it is a show featuring a strong young female heroine who does something that not a lot of other people before her had done on television. And that in itself is fascinating to people enough to want to study the effects of seeing that for the first time. On top of that, you have things like Willow being one of the first lesbian characters on television. And you have things happening like a lesbian sex scene happening in a later (laughs) season. And you know, it makes sense that people would want to study reactions to that and cite that as a reference of, you know, a landmark for LGBTQ plus studies and everything like that. You also have the idea of this show targeting mostly youth demographics and whether a show like this can be impressionable upon youth and, you know, shaping the minds of the (laughs) youth of tomorrow. I can totally see where there would be interest in studying something like that. And then just the larger shift on television in general with the way the stories are being told. You know, you have an episode like Hush. You have an episode like Once More with Feeling. These are pretty seminal moments, especially on broadcast television, for the medium. And anyone who is studying media is going to be interested in seeing what that does to shape the way that audiences perceive television and the way that storytellers tell their stories on television. I think it's just kind of a perfect storm, if I'm being honest. (laughs) Well, one final thing that is a pretty big thing that we haven't really touched on that much yet is that the show had a female hero. And for that reason, the show is heralded as ultra-feminist. There are just so many women in this world who watched Buffy and were inspired by her. And you can't deny that the show, at its core, is pretty feminist. I just read a great book about women in horror movies, and just reading that book, they never bring up Buffy, but there's just so many things that they mention within that book where I was like, ooh, the stake is a phallus, and, like, Buffy is taking the phallic power of, like, (laughs) the patriarchy. You know, like, (laughs) there's just so much, like, it's just so clear to me that it is a feminist show. And my final quote of the episode that I just thought was perfect is from a Rolling Stone article. It is, quote, behind that knowing winking title lurked a masterfully 
constructed story about a young woman learning to harness her internal power and ultimately determining how best to share it with the world. And as we've already said, Whedon's intention from the start was to subvert the expectation that was already there. The little blonde girl who goes into the alley and is killed. Well, now she has the power. And I think Buffy, while it wasn't perfect all the way through, while you could criticize it, to me, I think it is just such a great popular depiction of a woman who isn't always likable, owning her power and using that power and ultimately sharing that power with other women. And she is my feminist <laughs> icon and the feminist icon for so many, which is why, well, do you want to take this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose I can. The fact that Buffy is so inspiring to so many women as a symbol of female power, especially young female power. It's made especially disheartening and disturbing, maybe, that Joss Whedon has been accused by many people now of not liking women, <laughs> uh, to put it mildly. He's had many accusations of uh, misconduct on set, of maybe verbal assault, uh, I don't know how deep some of these allegations have gone, but absolutely some remarks that he's made that were inappropriate. And it's not the kind of behavior that you would expect from someone who you know, essentially created one of the strongest feminist icons of all time in media. So in 2017, Joss Whedon's wife published a letter about her marriage to him in which she revealed his many extramarital affairs with women, including actresses and producers that he worked with over the years. She, in that letter, called him a feminist hypocrite. So it's clear that it was, like, not just happening maybe on set, but, you know, if it was happening in his own home as well, and his wife felt the need to express that to the world, then, you know, that might be a pretty significant problem. I assume it was his ex-wife at the time. I guess I should right. clarify that, that they were divorced. But still. In 2021... So a couple of years later, there was an investigation that was launched as a result of accusations that Ray Fisher, who is an actor on the Justice League movie, made about his treatment by Joss Whedon on set and his treatment of other people on set. Charisma Carpenter, who was on Buffy, played the character Cordelia, and then uh, that character moved to the series Angel. She published published a statement explaining the toxic work environment that Joss Whedon had created. Uh, some of those examples she gave were that Whedon was speaking to her alone in a room and found out that she was pregnant, and he just straight up asked her in that moment if she was going to keep the baby. Charisma Carpenter is a Catholic, and he was, you know, kind of constantly berating her because of her religion and her beliefs. Mm -hmm. She was expected to have a very unrealistic production schedule for someone who was pregnant and had a baby, and ultimately she got written off the show because she was too difficult to deal with in his mind, maybe. <laughs> and other cast members and crew from Buffy stepped forward and corroborated that story, and a lot of them you know, gave specific examples of Joss Whedon's tendency to uh, talk down to 
his female writing staff and often cause them to even break down. One specific example that I meant to mention to you was that, so Michelle Trachtenberg was underage when she first started shooting on Buffy and maybe for the entire time that she was shooting on Buffy, but there was a an unwritten rule on set that after an incident with her and Joss Whedon that she was no longer allowed to be alone with him. Wow. And that's all I know about that. Like, I don't think any specifics have come out beyond that. But that is, that's pretty telling, I would say. for sure. So Joss Whedon constantly compared himself, or maybe the other way around. Joss Whedon basically has said many times that Xander is the kind of stand-in for him within the show of Buffy. Mm. And... When I was reading that in preparation for this episode, it kind of didn't seem surprising to me that he's actually a complete jerk to women because (laughs) Xander has so many moments within the series where he slut shames women, he cheats on his girlfriend, he's always trying to seek revenge on Angel, Buffy's ex, like he's he literally tries to kill him at several points, like it it just doesn't, I don't know, like knowing that, knowing that Xander is the Whedon stand-in, I'm like it all makes sense, like it was all written here for us to read from the get-go. I don't know, I mean I know that's such a kind of silly thing to say but for a show that has so much subtext woven into it it's like here is like a real world example he was literally telling us that he was an asshole Uh (laughs) and it turns out that it's true so i don't know just something that i that i thought was worth mentioning but it is just so unfortunate and you know we've definitely talked about this before in the past with like house of cards where it's like how do you separate art from artist Mm -hmm. and like buffy's still my favorite show it always is going to be and like Joss Whedon can't really ruin that for me but it does feel different to me than simply like Kevin Spacey playing a role because this is this man who was literally behind this whole idea and uh, of like this whole feminist hero Mm -hmm. and was given awards by feminist groups and like you know the staff of the show had more women on it than a lot of shows do to this day like there were women in important roles in the series so it's it's so unfortunate and it just is i don't even know what i think about it like i tried to come down on a a specific (laughs) point of view here and i just like I don't really have one because obviously the reach of the show is more impactful than anything Joss Whedon has done. Like the fact that it has positively influenced so many people, but it, it just feels so wrong (laughs) that Mm -hmm. he is the one that did this. I, I don't know. Yeah. I think, I mean, I obviously don't know what goes on in Joss Whedon's head, and I'm not going to try to psychoanalyze him, but it feels to me like he really thought that he was, like, that he was the right person to lift up, you know, a strong female hero, which is such a white male thing to do, (laughs) you know? Like, he just has that classic white male savior complex, like, oh, we need to see more strong women on TV? Well, let me take care of that. You know, like, that's just the whole impression I get from him after hearing these allegations. And, like, yes, he wrote some incredible parts for women and created this whole narrative surrounding a strong female character that has spanned so much media and inspired so much in the years to come after it. But for me, that 
is kind of canceled out in your legacy for sure if you're not actually representing that those same ideals behind the scenes you know like there's the old cliche actions speak louder than words well the words you scream at a woman alone in a room speak louder than the words you write on the page for that woman to say and you know it's good that these things are finally coming to light now but it's so sad that (laughs) things were as terrible behind the scenes for some of these women that have been revered as you know these characters yeah and i guess the thing i just keep coming back to is just like imagine how much better the show could have been had he been treating everyone behind the cast like behind the scenes with respect that's a good point like i've heard so many stories of even just he and sarah michelle geller just never got along and it's like it didn't have to be that way, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, wh- how would have her performance have been different? How would have her career been different mm-hmm. had he liked her? You know, there's just so many things we'll never know. And it's unfortunate because it didn't have to be like that. Yeah. Hopefully this is happening less. Like, hopefully these people are not getting to a- the positions of power that they used to be in. Mm-hmm. And it'll be interesting to see how things play out for him because while... I think his star has suffered a lot of its, lost a lot of its shine, maybe is the best way to say it. I just have this sneaking feeling like Joss Whedon's career is not over. Yeah. Like, if you just look at his pedigree, (laughs) if you look at his body of work, he has done too much that has been so successful that I just don't think there's any way he doesn't work again in hollywood Mm -hmm. i think he'll be gone for like five more years and then he'll come back with like another hit series and i could be wrong and like part of me wants to be wrong but then part of me just wants to see what he could make Mm because he has made so many shows that i adore so i don't know it's complicated (laughs) (laughs) it is complicated and you know I hope that all of this is a reckoning for him and that maybe he will realize the patterns of his very problematic behavior because of all of it and actually take steps to change that. And, you know, if he does, then okay, maybe we can give him another shot. But I just, I don't feel like we have seen any of that happening yet. You know, within the me too movement and all of that there's not been a person who has suffered the complete loss of their career who has bounced back because they quote unquote learned their lesson you know right so maybe he will learn his lesson but i don't know if it will necessarily mean he works again he might i wouldn't i guess i wouldn't be surprised if he does come back with another hit series or movie one day like you said but i guess you know, it remains to be seen, and it's also not going to change the fact that the media that he created before that point needs to always have that asterisk next to it, as I said earlier. One thing I did want to say, though, like, if Buffy was made today, even if Joss Whedon created it, I don't know that he would have been as powerful a force behind the scenes. Like, I don't don't feel like anyone ordering that show today would have allowed a man to be the driving creative force behind it yeah i agree yeah just a different kind of world we're living in but and i'm not mad at it (laughs) if it gets (laughs) rid of people who are not practicing what they preach so to speak then yeah um you know i'm okay with actually putting people behind the scenes who care about 
doing the right thing by not just their characters on screen, but by the people that they are working with behind the scenes. Well? Well, is there anything else that you wanted to say about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Elena? (laughs) I mean, there's so much I could say, but I think we hit on all of the relevant details. I think we did, too. I did want to say, Buffy Summers, she changed TV a lot, which is a play on her gravestone, which says she saved the world a lot. Anyway, oh, uh-huh. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's a good place to stop. And I think we said a lot, and I hopefully convinced some people that the show that I adore so much is as impactful as I believe it to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, even if you didn't, even if you weren't swayed, I hope you enjoyed listening to us talk about this series. I think it was, I had some fun. It was a good episode. And yeah, I don't know. Thanks yeah. for listening. Yes, we appreciate it. If you have been enjoying Televisionary, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you listen there or follow us on Spotify or More importantly than that, share an episode of ours with a friend. We would greatly appreciate it. Please do. You can also follow us at Televisionary Podcast on Instagram. And we would love to see more followers on our Instagram. (laughs) So please follow us yourself. And then tell a friend to follow us too. And tell them to tell a friend and then tell them to tell their friend to tell a friend. And then, you know, pretty soon the whole world will be following us. Yes, exactly. That's how it works, correct? (laughs) And then send a dollar in the mail, and in 10 months you will receive $1 million coming back to you from other people sending you a dollar. Right. And if you forward this email to 10 people, you will have good luck for a year. But if you don't forward it to 10 people, someone will, will die. Someone will kill your family. <laughs> bye! Alright, bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Televisionary. If you like what you heard, share this episode with a friend. You can follow us on Instagram at Televisionary Podcast, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Bye!